I'm Robert Colangelo, and this is Green Sense, where we bring you eco innovations that are changing your world. This week, we'll explore a practical approach to sustainability with our guest, Sandra Goldmark, who's a professor, author, entre, and entrepreneur with deep expertise in circularity and deep faith in the need for radical collaboration for climate action. Sandra, welcome to Green Sense. Thank you, Robert. It's so nice to be here. You're a sustainability rock star and have some just wonderful experience and credentials. Uh, you're author of the new book, Fixation. You're a senior assistant dean for interdisciplinary engagement at Columbia Climate School, director of campus sustainability and climate action and associate professor of professional practice at Barnard College, co-creator of the Sustainable Production Toolkit, founder of Fix Up, you're affiliated with Harvard College, and you also uh, are, are affiliated with the Yale School of Drama, which we're gonna get to. Anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, sounds like a sustainability obsessive when you put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let's talk about something that's very current. Uh, recently, the World Climate Summit, COP27, took place in Egypt where world leaders discuss climate policy. Um, these summits are very hard for most of us to relate to. You know, a bunch of talking heads, a lot of fanfare, but little action. In your opinion, what is the value of these world climate summits? Well, that is a tough question. And I think a fair critique that is embedded in your question. Um, I do think though, that this needs to happen. Uh, in some ways, the fact that these climate summits keep happening and not making the progress we want to happen points to a larger problem, which is how do we make these decisions across international boundaries? How do we really begin to work effectively and in a binding way at the global level? And we've never really had to this quite this way before. So certainly there's some frustration every year, um, but I do see some progress. Maybe I'm just an optimist and I do see the need. Um, and so I applaud my colleagues that are over there in the trenches trying to make this work. Well, Gandhi said, when the people lead, the leaders will follow. Is it time for the people to take the lead in sustainability? Yes, all day, every day, <laughs> you're here. Well, let's talk a little bit about your book, Fixation. Uh, uh, how did you come about and what caused you to write that book? Um, I was working as a theatrical set designer about in about 2012 and I had two. Is there anything you little... don't do? <laughs> <laughs> My path is so weird and meandering. It's like impossible, but don't worry about it. <laughs> and actually a lot of people in climate, I find have these weird meandering paths, maybe because it is this exploding new field where the needs are so unmet. Anyway, so I was there designing scenery, had two little kids at home and I felt that this you know, I worked in the world of stuff. I made scenery, I made costumes, I put them on stage, but I felt like the system was so messed up. In the theater, I was creating waste, thousands of pounds of waste scenery that would just go right in the dumpster. At home, I was drowning in what I called baby clutter and New York apartment clutter. And everything just felt like I had no choices or the choices I had didn't make sense. I have to throw this broken thing away, even though I know it's perfectly good. So, he, Here's the slightly illogical part of the journey. Remember, I had a little baby. I was sleep deprived. I decided to start a repair shop in my neighborhood because I thought, well, actually, step one was I wrote a letter to Walmart and I said, you need to put a repair shop in the corner of every Walmart so I can get my damn vacuum fixed and you'll diversify your business model, too. 
but my husband, bless him, said, you know, maybe Walmart's not going to read your letter, Miss <laughs> <laughs> sleep-addled set designer, and maybe we should get some data. So I thought, well, in theater, we know how to fix things. Let's open our own little repair shop and let's show the world, our neighborhood, New York, myself, I don't know. Let's show that people will come, that people want things fixed, and that they'll pay for it, i.e., let's get some data that shows that other people are frustrated with this messed up system as well. So that's what we did. Well, in the past, there were a lot of fix-up shops. What happened to them? Why did they go away? That's part of the frustration, isn't it? Is uh, I felt it, and so many of our customers felt it, where they would say, oh, there used to be a repair guy down the street, and they are, they're going away. As we all know from our neighborhoods, there's a number of factors at play. Um, the the artificially low price of new goods. So, and this is where you know there's direct relation to the climate price crisis. We're not paying the true cost of those raw materials. We're not paying the true cost of those fossil fuels to ship those goods all over the world, and we're not paying the true cost of the labor for the people who make the things we buy today. So those prices are very low. For somebody living in New York or really almost anywhere in the United States, therefore, it's very hard to make a living fixing something if the person who made it didn't make a living wage. So we've got this strange system where um, some of the inequalities and climate impacts are in a weird way fueling this, this uh very local, very personal feeling of, wait a minute, this doesn't feel right. This doesn't make sense. Why can't I get this fixed? Yeah, it's a shame. Uh, things are so disposable. And as you said, they're so cheap. But if you have any type of conscience or care for the planet, you feel terrible throwing this stuff away. But if you don't have the talent to fix it, it's a challenge. So uh, getting into the book, there's a couple of chapters here. The one I wanted to dig into is the global conspiracy to clutter your home embellish on that and tell us a little bit more about that. So um, the book, before I get to that chapter, just so people understand that step, the book is guided, it's really inspired by the food writer, Michael Pollan, who um, several years ago said, oh my God, our food system is so messed up and look at all these crazy diets. Hold on, there has to be a simpler way, right? And he said, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Like if you do that, you're probably okay. And I think that this, what I call the stuff movement has a lot to learn from the food movement. And it's very similar for stuff. We need to have good stuff, not too much, mostly reclaimed, care for it and pass it on. But anyway, so the clutter chapter is a little bit about that second part of not too much. Like how did we get to a place where we're really drowning a lot of Americans and Europeans are really drowning in these low quality new goods. And how can we get out of that? How can we begin to um, consume, but also sell products in a different way where it's not just about volume, but a little bit more about quality. And how do we do that? Well, there's a lot of answers to that. Um, and it sort of depends, um, this is sort of the beauty of, the whole book is basically about the circular economy. But I always hesitate to say that because I think that feels really distant to people. They're like, I don't know what the circular economy is. I don't live there. But actually we do, we all live there. We all live in bits of these systems that have existed forever. And so one of the ways that we can think about, let's say you're an individual 
about having less clutter and less overconsumption is to um, buy higher quality goods less often, buy more used goods. Like when you feel that need for, Ooh, I want that little fun, you know, get something new in my life rather than beat yourself up about it, buy something that's sustainably produced or better yet buy something that's used. One of my ideas in the book is like, you don't have to feel bad about the things that you buy or the clutter in your home. It's not a thing to feel guilty about. It's just something to, to think about how can you do this better? And if you start buying less, you start buying higher quality products and you start passing them on when you're done with them, you can have a little bit less of that feeling of drowning and clutter. What about the concept of having the manufacturers take stuff back when it comes to the end of its life cycle? Because Thank they're you, bigger, great... they're more established, and maybe they can handle that whole circular economy better than individuals. Excellent question, because that's the flip side of it, right? We could put all on the individual consumer and be like, you need to change the way that you shop. And, and you can. I'm not going to sit around waiting, frankly, for the big corporations to shift to a circular economy because it's going to take time. I'm going to deal with my shit right now. <laughs> but at the same time, the way we get there at scale and at the global level is what you just said is for, um, remember my little letter to Walmart in the very beginning is for the Walmarts and many other companies of the world to begin offering higher quality products, less new products, but more used products, repair, service, upgrade, and taking products back at the end of life. And that is how it will be easier for people so that they don't have to wait for like a random theater designer to open a repair shop down the street, but they can actually go to their local store and get things fixed or, or bring them back or have them resold. Isn't that a direct conflict with quarterly earnings? I actually don't think so. And I just gave a, um, a talk today at a, uh, uh, at a business school about the whole basis or one of the core ideas of the circular economy, two core ideas are that waste equals food, right? So you're going to be bringing materials and used goods back into your supply chain so you can sell them again, and that we need a diversity of business models. So right now, many big businesses are locked into essentially one way of making money, selling new goods at the lowest price possible. It's a very vulnerable position, actually, for a business. If they can diversify that revenue stream and, again, make money from repair or from selling the same object twice or reupholstering it or switching out the battery, they actually have a more resilient business model because they've diversified. So let's talk a little bit about the circular economy. The current state of the practice for most companies is take, make, waste. So we mm -hmm. take stuff from the earth. We make stuff out of it, and then we put it in landfills, and there's actually waste along that process. Tell us a little bit about the circular economy. Sure. So the idea, the basic idea of the circular economy is moving from that linear to a loop where we're still taking some resources from the earth. That's not going to go away, but we're harvesting less and we're harvesting renewable, sustainable, and ethically produced resources. We're designing products that from the start take into mind the end of life. They're designed to last a long time, designed to be fixed, designed to be disassembled. We're distributing them and using them, but then we're reusing them, reselling them, repairing them, refurbishing. They stay in use for as long as possible at the highest possible utility. 
Eventually they go back into remanufacturing or maybe traditional recycling. And all of those materials that we took from the earth as much as possible stay in the loop and get used again and go into a new product. Do you have some examples of companies that uh, have done this well? The one that comes to mind for me is BMW. Hmm. They, they make their cars to totally come apart at the end of the life cycle so they can be recycled. I did not know that about BMW, but that's fantastic. The automotive industry does have some amazing remanufacturing, partly because they have such a long history of repair. It's such a high value item. Um, but I will add that to my list. One, one product that comes to mind that I love that, um, especially because it's a product that many people feel frustration with is, um, have you heard of Fairphone? No. So Fairphone is a, um, I believe it's a Dutch company and they are really looking at the whole cycle for their phones. How do they source their raw materials sustainably and ethically? How do they design that phone to be repairable, long lasting, modular, right? So you can actually take the battery in and out easily. They collect their phones at the end of life and they offer refurbishing and resale. So it's a, it's a really cool product. That sounds wonderful. So one of your chapters is getting good at getting used. Tell us uh, about the essence of that chapter. <laughs> That's one of my favorite ones because buying used stuff on the one hand, like it's so familiar, like who in the world has not bought a used item at some point in their life? But on the other hand, it's this kind of under, maybe under-recognized linchpin, like this really easy thing that we can all do that's so available to us, and yet we don't. So that chapter is really about thinking, again, if you think about like our food analogy, when you change your food diet, you want to eat more leaves and less garbage. You don't just turn the volume up on leaves, right? <laughs> it's the same thing with stuff. You want to turn down the volume on those cheap, low quality, new goods, what I call cheap stuff calories, empty stuff calories. And you want to turn up the volume on used goods because used goods is a very simple way, very intentional, easy way that you can reduce your impact from consumption, but still be able to buy some stuff now and then without like, you know, having a huge headache. And, um, what I talk about in that chapter is how do you get there? Like some people love shopping. Some people only thrift for certain items. And for me, it was a question on an individual basis of looking at the categories of stuff in my life and really expanding what I was able to get used for myself, given my comfort level. And the exciting news is that even since I wrote the book, um, and certainly since I started the repair shops, it's getting easier and easier for people to do this because companies are building the platforms, the websites, the logistical systems. So when I, I remember when I first started the repair shops, it was very hard to get certain items used still, unless you were able to like totally go to the Goodwill and comb through. And now the, the capacity to buy used goods online is growing every year, which is super exciting. Yeah. And that's a great way to use technology. Um, mm -hmm. One of your, your closing chapter, I love the title. What does God have to do with stuff? <laughs> sort of sounds like a song, but tell us, tell us more. That chapter is, I'm really going out there on that chapter. I think it's, I think it's actually just called God and stuff, <laughs> but one, it's just an exploration. We got each chapter is guided by an object that we fixed in the repair shop. 
And that object looks at three, that chapter looks at three different objects from three different world religions. There was a sign inspired by the Judeo Christian religion, um, seven Bhagavad Gita's inspired, you know, from the Hindu tradition, and a chi revitalizer, which is clearly loosely associated with a kind of Taoist tradition. But it was a way of beginning to ask how do our religious and spiritual um, inheritances perhaps shape our notions of ownership and by extension our notions of our relationship with the physical world objects around us but even the bigger physical world so i talk a lot about the notion of um dominion in the judeo-christian world is that a sense of ownership or is that a responsibility for stewardship um, we look at hinduism and the multiplicity of ways um, and gods and ways that we can think about our relationship with the world. Anyway, it's a little bit of a cuckoo chapter, but it's one of my favorites. <laughs> it's got a good catchy title. Well, let's talk about Fix Up. How'd you get it started? And what are some of the great things that it accomplishes? So as I said, I was, you know, had to be in my bonnet about consumption and stuff and repair and, and needed and thought, well, we better try this ourselves. So we opened our first repair shop in 2013. We just thought we would do this once. I thought it was kind of a research project. We hired a bunch of fellow theater artists to staff the shop. So we had like a costumer, an electrician, a carpenter, <laughs> me. Um, and we just opened our doors, a bunch of theater kids kind of like playing repair shop. But the response was so strong from the customers, from our neighbors, from the community that we thought, oh my God, we're, we're onto something here. And so we kept doing it. We kept fix. We kept fixing, and then we kept running these pop-up repair shops. I think we did um, about twelve or fourteen over the period of of seven years. All were they New York focused City. on different uh, things to fix, or was it a a, a wide open? Uh... <laughs> it was like a wide open door. We narrowed the door a little bit when we got smarter. But the first shop, it was just like anything that can fit in the door, we'll try to fix it. <laughs> uh, chairs, lamps, jewelry, ceramics stuffed lobsters, printers. We shut the door on that really quickly. It was impossible. Um, and we started even doing electronics, phones, iPads. We just wanted to experiment. What, what could we fix? What couldn't we fix? And, and, and would people pay? Did you make money at it or was it, have, did it have other goals? We or did you make money in. and it had other goals? <laughs> <laughs> we certainly didn't go into it with the idea of, of making money because I thought it was just a research project. But then the the question of, I did go into it knowing that I didn't want it to be free because I was very curious about what will people pay and how much will they pay. And coming from a theater background, I wasn't about to ask my friends to come work for free. I mean, I don't know if you've ever worked in theater, but there's too much of that. <laughs> so I said, we've got to pay each other and ourselves. And then we kind of were, again, we were, we didn't know what to charge. So but as we realized we could actually pay for the service and people were willing to pay, we kept raising our prices. And somewhere around the third or fourth pop-up, we started breaking even. And I was like, holy smokes, I can't believe we're breaking even. Because if you think about it with a pop-up, you have these incredible startup costs every single time and close down costs. It was like the most inefficient business you could possibly imagine. And I was still breaking even. And I thought, wow, there's, there's something here. So from that point, we just tried to make enough money to fund the next pop-up. Um, but it was very telling to me that, you know, 
it made me think it's it's not impossible. This can be part of the kind of economic landscape again, potentially. And where is the uh, fix-up uh, concept now? <laughs> is it? So we operated our last shop in 2019, and then I was writing this book and the pandemic hit, and we had to put it all on on hold. And also, as you mentioned, I have like 85 jobs at Barnard and the climate school and all of this. And so I thought I can't be running the repair shops still. So now what I'm doing is trying, I'd love to sort of help others either start these on a small scale or these bigger companies that are thinking about going circular or more than thinking about it, committing to it. I'd love to see them really start to think about repair at scale in a, in a more serious way than I was able to at my scale. Well, I think it's a great idea and it's something simple that serves the public and it uh, solves a lot of sustainability issues. So in closing, uh, let's talk a little bit about the Yale School of Drama and the Sustainable Production Toolkit. Well, that's a real, maybe for listeners so far, that's a little bit of a side track, though, of course, for me, it's related. You have to remember the whole time I was running these repair shops, I was still designing for theaters around the country. I'm not designing anymore. Again, too much climate work. But um, I was bringing these notions of circularity and sustainable design back to the theater and vice versa. There's actually a lot of circularity in theater by nature. We've been reusing things since the Greeks. But there's also this push like everywhere for the cheapest, quickest way to do things, to the push to kind of go linear and cheap. So with some colleagues over the pandemic, we created what we call the Sustainable Production Toolkit, which is a free downloadable resource to help theater organizations, theater practitioners, really performing artists of any kind, bring climate and sustainability to their work. So it's a lot of free tools and resources, specifically looking at uh, a lot of circular design and production. So you have the last word, any sage advice you wanna share with our listeners? Maybe we should go back to where you started when you said, um, it sounds like you were thinking about that challenge of like the big picture, high level negotiations at the cop and then the people like what do what do what is the people's role in leading this change? And I guess I um, it sort of relates again to the part of our conversation where we talked about, is it that individual and the way she shops or is it the big kind of systemic change? And I guess I feel like it's really important to acknowledge that there is not one without the other. And every single thing that individuals do makes a difference and matters, especially if they speak up about it and make some noise. Well, Sandra, you were a delight to have on the show. Uh, thank you for joining us on Green Sense. Thank you so much for having me. That's Sandra Goldmark, professor, author, entre, and entrepreneur with deep expertise in circularity and sharing a new way to look at sustainability. Green Sense is an independent radio show. We rely on sponsorship and listener support to produce high quality audio broadcasts that promote innovators with sustainable solutions. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, visit the greensensefarms.com website to learn more. I'm Robert Colangelo. Thank you for listening to Green Sense and check out the Green Sense Minute every Thursday and Saturday on 105.9 FM, WBBM Chicago.